The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hey, listeners. Welcome to In the Arena. I'm Jackie Goldberg. And I'm Leah Smart. And today we're going to be talking with Scott Shute. He's the head of mindfulness and compassion at LinkedIn. And he's the author of the book, The Full Body Yes, which Jackie and I both finished and just loved. This book was so much fun to read. I mean, just to give a quick example, on the cover, Daniel Goldman, who is the author of Emotional Intelligence, he writes, Scott Shute shares a fascinating tale, well told, making a heartfelt case for self-awareness, full presence, and compassion. I couldn't stop reading. And literally, this is how I felt the entire time. I couldn't put it down. It was just so engaging, um, really leaving me, and I know you, Leah, as well, like just feeling inspired and connected. And I think one of the biggest things is that Scott's book is really just a compilation of stories So every single part starts with a story. So it just really makes it so digestible and just enjoyable. Yeah, it was it was an awesome book. I think I started it on a Saturday and I was like, oh, I could be done with this tomorrow. So a little bit more about Scott. Uh, He's held multiple leadership roles at LinkedIn, including the VP of our global customer operations. And actually, in 2018, he transitioned into building a program aligned with changing work from the inside out. So uh, what's interesting is not long after his transition, Jackie and I connected with Scott because of our own work and our own goal to do the same. And so he became the first person to sponsor this podcast. So a lot of what we we were able to do our first few years was in large part due to Scott's sponsorship and believing in us. But really at its core, Scott's work is about how each of us go on our own journey of self-discovery, of love, and how we give that love to others. And that's exactly how he structured the book. So there are four parts. Part one is know yourself. And it's really about understanding and observing how you experience the world, your perspectives. And the goal really from what what we gathered is to just wake up, right? Becoming more conscious and choosing how we want to live. That's right. And part two is love yourself. And this is really about recognizing there's so much more to each of us than just our physical body. He talks a lot about having this inner critic, which all of us have, and the importance of understanding it to know that it's really meant for protection. So once you know that, you can take the steps that are necessary to learn how to quiet it. And then really another important piece around loving yourself is just having gratitude for every moment. And then part three is the inner journey, the mastery of me. And this is so incredible. It's about taking responsibility for everything in our lives. It's about finding the opportunity for growth in every moment, even the challenging ones, especially the challenging ones. Because when we know, when we love ourselves, we're able to meet life fully. We're connected, our mind, our body, and spirit. And then we really feel that full body yes, which is, of course, the name of the book. And then in part four is about compassion and action. So along this path of fully getting to know ourselves, fully loving ourselves, and then mastering ourselves, 
we somewhere along the way get drawn to giving ourselves away, to really serving other people, to serving life, to serving the connectedness that we all have and feel being on this planet. And ultimately what we recognize is that we are inseparable from the rest of life and the rest of the living beings that inhabit this planet with us. And so what you'll see in this episode is that Scott shares four stories from the book. So actually four snippets. And this is one story from each of these parts that we just covered. Know yourself, love yourself, the inner journey, the mastery of me, and compassion in action. And then Lee and I go into more depth on each of these parts within the interview with him. We also interviewed Scott back in January of 2020. Uh, I believe it was episode 24. So for our listeners, uh, that goes into more depth on Scott's role at LinkedIn and how he aims to bring mindfulness and compassion to organizations. Uh, So if you're interested before this episode or after this episode, definitely go ahead and check that out. Scott's book, The Full Body Yes, is going to be released on May 11th. So you can pre-order this book on scottshoot.com. And if you're interested in purchasing the book, it's also going to be on Audible. So uh, really fun to listen to Scott continue to share some of these stories. And we are so excited for you to sit with us on this journey of chatting with Scott today. And we'll see you on the other side. Part one, know yourself. Anicia, what do you want to do? She exhales loudly, slowly shaking her head back and forth, dropping her eyes to her lap. She shrugs, deflated, mutters. Does it even matter? I've been mentoring Anicia off and on for six months. I'm leading global customer operations at LinkedIn. And she's been working as a product manager on an adjacent team for the past couple years. She is great at her job, a rising star. She's making progress, getting traction with a product that's been struggling. And her leadership team is taking notice. Her peers have great things to say about her. She has the world on a string. And she is miserable. Anicia's journey had started early. In third grade, her mother, a successful software engineer, had bullied her school into bumping her up a grade. She knew all the math, and she was bored. In middle school, she went to Kumon even though she had straight A's. At 13, she studied, memorized, and drilled for hours with her sister to win the state spelling bee. But she felt humiliated when she missed, just missed, the top five at nationals. She missed the word theliuracis, definition, any of a group of livestock diseases caused by protozoan parasites of the genus Theliria gondiria, transmitted by tick bites says the Encyclopedia Britannica. She was mortified and irritated that she didn't know what it meant. The memory of the judge informing her of her error still haunts her. And worse was her father's thin smile and faint praise. Almost top five. In high school, she took as many STEM and AP classes as she could, and she played field hockey and soccer. But she wasn't the captain. She was the student body vice president. And she tied with 15 other students with perfect grades for valedictorian. She got a 1540 out of 1600 on her SAT. She took it five times. Her father kept dropping in conversations that one of her cousins, Prakash, had gotten a 1570. She did well at Carnegie Mellon, studying computer science in her mother's footsteps. She avoided the big parties, didn't join a sorority, didn't date even though she had a lot of attention in her classes. 
and she didn't love her classes. She got the first B of her life in the first semester as she adjusted to life away from home. It didn't happen again. And here she was, with one of the most coveted jobs at one of the most prestigious companies in the world, tearing it up, a raging success. Miserable. I got accepted into Harvard, she tells me flatly. I had written her a letter of recommendation for business school a few months before. Seriously? Whoa, that's amazing! I say, and she's half smiling. It isn't hard to see her suffering. And? I don't know. I got rejected by Stanford. Okay, well, they clearly don't know what they're missing. She gives me a wry smile. Anyway, I continue. Wasn't Harvard your first choice? Isn't that what you wanted? Her eyes well up just a little. She quickly tries to hide it, sniffing and hardening her posture. She bites her lower lip. Does it even matter? She asks. What's going on? She's quiet for a long time, and finally she relents. It's time for it all to spill out. My life is a mess. I I don't even know if I want to do this. I've been thinking about it a lot. I, I can't get excited about it. Her eyes search the floor for answers. Okay. I think for a moment. So when you applied, what was it that was most exciting for you? She takes a deep breath and lets it out loudly. Well, I had been in my role for two years and I hadn't been promoted yet. I wanted to be a CEO someday, so I thought I'd follow the recipe. Go to the best B school I could get into, maybe go into consulting for a couple years, and then relaunch at a higher level. Maybe lead product management at a smaller company, do the startup thing. I don't know, then see what happens. Is that what you want? I thought so, but no. She looks up. For all her wavering, that part is clear. I nod and wait for her to continue. It turns out I like my job here. I raise my eyebrows. Is that a problem? Well, it's great. It's just that part of me feels like I'm settling, like I could do more. I smile, exhale a bit. There it is, more. And part of me is tired of running. I've been chasing something my whole life, always more and more and more. I never really stopped to ask why. Okay, so now you're slowing down a bit and asking yourself what you really want. Does, does that sound right? Turns out I'm happy enough with my life here at LinkedIn. And she's now meeting my eyes, but she still seems pained. Okay, great. Have you told your parents? We've had lots of conversations about the incredible expectations of her parents. And even though she's 25, they are very much part of her life and her decision-making. Her parents have always dreamed of her going to Harvard. Oh, yeah, there's that. Turns out that Harvard is not even the hardest part. In fact, it's not even a thing at the moment. My life really is a mess right now. I nod and wait for her to continue. I have this friend, Aisha, from work, and she has a friend from college, and I've been hanging out with him. He's getting his residency in Palo Alto. He's funny. He's nice to me. She trails off, staring at the wall. Ha ha! You found a doctor boy, just like your parents wanted. I'm joking, trying to lighten things up. We've covered this topic before. Anitia's parents have been sending her resumes for nice doctor boys since she was a senior in college. Kind of. His name is Jackson. Yeah? In her face, I see the answer to my next question. What party of India is he from? Nashville, she smirks. I let out a chuckle. Whoa. The gravity of the situation starting to take hold. I wince. Her parents are from Mumbai. They had moved to the States nearly 30 years ago. 
They dress in Western clothing, and they've become proud Americans. They go to high school football games, eat pizza, and they join the local gym. Their Indian accents are still there, but only slightly. But they are still very traditional about some things. They're Hindu, and they want Indian grandchildren. Have you told your parents that part? She nods, almost imperceptibly. Well, that's huge news. How'd it go? I'm remembering when I first met my own in-laws, and I can feel the tension. I thought my dad would be upset and my mom would be neutral, at least. But she's the one freaking out. She's telling me to break it off with him. Telling me to end it or I'm not part of the family anymore. End it or I'm not her daughter. Anitya's eyes flash with anger. Jeez! Oh, I'm sorry. I like my job here and... She sighs a deep sigh that has been welling up for 15 years. And... I love him. Jackson's the only person that has actually ever cared for me, for who I really am. He sees me. We sit in silence for a long time. Well, it sounds like you know what you want. She takes a deep breath and closes her eyes. And she takes another deep breath and opens them. Yeah, I'm not sure that helps. Scott, this is one of my my favorite parts of the book because this is like the where I feel like I've focused so much of my my life. Well, all, all the parts of the book I, I've loved, but um, I remember this one point where I was considering whether or not to continue in an interview process a few years back, and I remember you saying to me like, "You're like I don't have great advice. This is going to sound cheesy, but follow your heart." And I was like, oh, God, that's like the last thing I want to hear. <laughs> um, and it reminded me of this Anitya story because you told me to like follow my heart. And I'm like, but that's like not what I'm supposed to be doing. So um, part of my curiosity and what I loved about the book is that we don't really know what happened to her. Like, did ah. she do it? Did she not? Um, <laughs> and, and the other part is like, where does this come from for you and your own experiences? Sure. Well, the point largely we're trying to make here is that when we really know ourselves, we know our own story, first of all, and and why we make decisions. But two, we start to understand the external systems that are driving our lives, right? So in the case of Anitya or in all of us, because look, these are the stories of every one of us. Our external systems are the family or friends or the external things that all tell us we should be doing something. And this is the story we end up in our head, that we should be doing something. And we, we chase after happiness looking for external validation, right? In my own experience, I was, I'm the youngest of five. And I spent my entire childhood and most of my adult life trying to achieve, probably unconsciously, so I could have the attention of my father. And beyond that, the attention of everybody else around me. Because that was kind of my life strategy, now that I've mature enough to understand why. My life strategy was to be safe, and to be safe was to have people like me. So likability was my life strategy as a protection mechanism. But that doesn't always lead us to happiness, because if we're always chasing external validation, we don't control external validation. And so it's first just recognizing that we are making decisions not for ourselves, but for someone else. And in the long run, we're happier if we can stand on our own two feet and be happy for our own selves with our own choices, regardless of what anybody else thinks. And that's where we really get our strength from.
what happens when we really know ourselves and we end up following what is within us versus relying on those external systems yeah i think that's when we live our true our true purpose right when we really dive deep into who we are we really know ourselves and then we can follow our heart we can follow our truth and that i believe leads us to happiness it leads us to a type of freedom that we never get when we follow all the shoulds and we follow only the external systems yeah you know the story that leah just shared about following your heart scott you had given me that as well um that advice during one of um a challenging situation that I was going through at work. And I remember knowing that, but really having a difficult time connecting with it. Mm. And even right now, you know, in my life going, I'm going through something challenging personally. And I hear that message, you know, look within, follow my heart, listen, you know, that's a big part of your book too, is listen to that voice and connect. Right. But it's so hard sometimes. <laughs> it's, right? it's extraordinarily hard. <laughs> no, so, this is not easy. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's great advice. And what do we do when we're stuck? Yeah. Look, I think this is, first of all, this is a lifelong journey. This is not something you s- turn the switch on and all of a sudden the, it, the truth just floods into you. It takes trial and error. So I think first we know ourselves. We know our core. We know our values. And then if we know our values and who we really are, then every decision we can, that we make, we filter against those values. It's like, okay, does this decision, left or right, this job or that job, this relationship, that relationship, get me closer to my values? So that's kind of a simple way that we can do it. And then learning to listen is the trial and error. We learn like, oh, that didn't go well, right? Or, or that went great. And we kind of reevaluate those two things. It's interesting. I'm reading a book right now by David Brooks. He's a New York Times uh, columnist and he's an author, a multiple time author. He falls more on the conservative spectrum of things. And one of the things that he shares in his book, it's called The Second Mountain, which funny enough, you have a chapter in here about climbing the right mountain. So it made me think of him. And that's what made me start reading the book. But he shares uh, that our society, particularly in the West, has gone so far to rugged, hyper individualism of this, you know, do what's best for you, moving forward with towards freedom and destiny and purpose. And all of those things speak to my heart. And I know they do as, as in yours as well, because we're both Enneagram seven. So we're over here That's looking right. for freedom and, and all that. But what is, what is your thought about how we balance this kind of seesaw of, of going so deep into serving ourselves and then also serving others? Sure. I think what you said at the end is the is the right balance. It's, you know, the the rugged individualism, if it stops there, then I think that's a problem. But it's the it's the development of self, almost the ruthless development of self, but it's so that at the end we can serve. It's it's not just self-serving. So I think my my mental model for this is like we at our deepest and highest parts of us, I, I would call it soul. Everybody has a kind of a different, you know, mental model for that, is a creative spark, right? A creative spark of energy. And we want to express that. And so we want to hone a craft. We want to get good at our jobs. We want to get good at our hobbies. We want to really express who we are. And there's nothing wrong with that. The challenge is we over-identify with the results of that success and we over-identify with that craft. 
And so if my if I want to express myself by getting great at my job, that's one thing. But if I'm so tied into my job that all I care about is the money or the title, or I'm so deeply held on to what other people think of me because of that job that I can't go do something else, then it's a problem, right? So yes, we should develop ourselves. And then for real happiness, it's about service, right? It's about giving unconditional, well, not really unconditionally, but giving in a way that serves the whole and that whole includes ourselves, I almost, I always hear, whenever I hear happiness, I'm one of those people that like, it gets triggered by that word. So I'm always thinking like contentment, joy, fulfillment, because those feel more long lasting than the spikes of what we hope to be when we're like, oh, I was happy. It's like, well, in two days, you're not going to be happy. How do you, how does knowing yourself help you sustain, you know, happiness or whatever you want to call it? And also connecting to your soul. I think part of it is being aware of what's happening to me. Meaning that if I feel myself starting to get whatever the emotion is, angry, frustrated, sad, if I really know myself, then I know oftentimes why that's happening, right? As an example, last week, I had this day where I was traveling with my family. We were on vacation and I I was really kind of grumpy in the afternoon. And I realized it's because I'd had a milkshake for lunch, right? And for me, I mean, look, sometimes it gets me, sometimes it doesn't, but I knew what the cause was. It was, you know, it was that milkshake. And that's really useful because then I don't need to direct my grumpiness towards my family or the traffic or anything going on. It's like, oh, dude, I drank the milkshake. It's my fault. Okay, I'm not, I won't do that again. Or maybe I'll wait a little longer until I do it the next time. So, so part of it is just that recognition. We can, we can observe ourselves in a way that's much more powerful than, we're, than when we're kind of asleep at the wheel. Mm-hmm. There's also grace there because I think inherently we all aspire to be our best self. And so if we're able to have the awareness of when we're not our best selves in the moment, we don't have to think of it existentially as like, oh, I'm not my best self a- at all, right? It's just in this moment because I had this milkshake or because of whatever, I'm not in my best state. And so because of that, I can take the proper actions. I can share that with my loved ones. I can take a moment to step back and relax or give yourself the calm that you need. Absolutely. Can we also just comment on how you just pitched the hardest idea of the day for me to swallow, no pun intended, that a milkshake is not a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Well, That's devastating. Everybody's body is different, right? And sometimes I can handle the milkshake and sometimes it gets me. And when it gets me, I just have to kind of shake and go, okay, you got me. Darn it. (laughs) (laughs) What kind was it? It had to be good at least. Oh, it wasn't. This was the problem. We were driving across country and I got it at an Arby's, you know, and even got the little kids one, the smallest one. (laughs) Totally got me. And then I was thinking, well, if I'd gotten it at Haagen-Dazs, maybe it wouldn't have. So I was was blaming it on the, you know, the the fast (laughs) food milkshake. Right. (laughs) You know, it's funny. I do notice as we're talking about knowing ourselves, I know this is kind of silly, but it's actually very true. I notice when I have more sugar and now as I, as I get older, like, I'm like, oh my gosh, that actually really affects me. Or if I have oh, yeah. a little bit more coffee than normal, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's, I'm in a different place than I normally would be. I think this is, this is something that most people aren't in tune with, but everybody, I think everybody's affected by how much sleep they get, how much water they drink, the types of foods they eat, and it infects them hugely. They just don't want to admit it to themselves or they're not aware of it. Because look, it's hard. Once you know that, it's hard to then go, ah. Oh, I can't have that or I have to moderate it. That's where the work comes in. 
Yeah. And, and we're just speaking about physical body, right? Like food affecting our physical body, sleep affecting our physical, physical body. Um, but you know, to your point, you know, people caring what others think of them. Right. And, and emotions that come out when people say things, right? How words affect us, um, and how we handle that, you know, in your book, you talk a lot about the amygdala. And I think one of the things that you, you do really well is that you take this, you know, scientific term, the amygdala, and you make it into a really simple understanding that as humans, we focus on the negative. We are wired in our brain to focus on the negative. And so can you talk a little bit about how this affects us, especially when it comes to knowing ourselves? Sure. So our bodies, our brains have evolved in a way that has kept us alive, right? So you imagine a thousand, a hundred thousand, a million years ago, whatever we were like at the time. And we're finely tuned to seek out, not seek out danger, but recognize danger, right? So if a stick snaps in the woods, our bodies, boom, we're all alert and on fire and the lizard brain kind of takes over. We're in fight or flight. And, you know, in these days, our amygdala is still triggered, but it's triggered by the angry email or the kids in the next, in the next room screaming while we're trying to do a Zoom call. Uh, Those things are still happening to, to us physically. But beyond physically, what happens is our thoughts tend to go to the negative as well. Our thoughts tend to go to the 1% of our lives that are bad because they think they're trying to keep us you know, alive. I call this pothole management. There can be like a thousand miles of perfect road, but if there's one pothole and we're the crew that's in charge of the road, what do we talk about in our team meeting? We talk about the pothole. Right? We don't talk about the 999.9 miles of perfect road. We usually don't celebrate the people who made it perfect and kept it perfect. We talk about the pothole. And in our own lives, we're no different. We tend to focus on the, here's what's wrong with my life. And so that, this is just biology. This is just how we're, I'm going to say, programmed, not hardwired. Because the good news is we can program ourselves in different ways to avoid that. So Things like gratitude, things like appreciation, things about, you know, joy on purpose are the things that help us counterbalance this natural reaction, which is our negativity bias. I found that your concept of black belt gratitude has been so helpful. So for our listeners, this is when you are going through a challenging situation in your life in the moment right now, and you find the gratitude in that. So what is this bringing to you? What is the silver lining? And it really does help with reframing. It helps you see the positive, but you have to be so intentional about it. It's super hard. I mean, all of us probably have experiences with the benefit of time, right? So as an example, in my own life, there was a period of time, maybe 12 or maybe even more years ago, where I lost my job. My job was, my position was eliminated three times over the course of four years. And that was a pretty dark time for me in my career. And I had a lot of anger and frustration at other people and shame and disgust for myself. And if you'd asked me, like, what's the good in this? It was hard. Like, it was really hard to find that. But with the benefit of time, I look back on that period and say, that was the best thing that ever happened to my career because of how I changed in the middle. Because, look, I believe that we are never given more than we can handle, but life gives us things that we can't handle with our current recipe. And so that causes growth. All right, so that's with the benefit of time. Now, the real challenge is to take something that is right now, like I'm in the middle of the mess right now, and to constantly focus on, okay, what can I learn? 
right? This is, this is growth mindset. Instead of viewing it as life is happening, you know, to me, what if I shift it to life is happening for me and say, what is this teaching me? What can I learn? How can I emerge from this stronger? And just say, thank you every time that is super hard, but that's black belt level gratitude. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Part two, love yourself. Are you really playing music again this year? My friend asked me this about a month away from our neighborhood block party in San Jose. We shut down the block to cars and pull tables and chairs into the middle of our quiet street. The kids play basketball. Someone arranges to have firefighters and their fire truck come. And if there's not a drought going on, the firefighters will open up one of the hydrants for the kids to play in. There's a cornhole tournament, endless barbecue, and a fair amount of drinking. And music. Vincent and I normally set up a little makeshift stage on his porch and play guitars and sing. I was planning to. Why? Well, what? What is it? I'm not sure you should this year. I can feel my face getting hot. Why is that? It's just that I, I don't know if people are that into it. Really? I'm starting to get jumpy. Yeah, uh, last year lots of people left the area you were in and went to go drink in peace somewhere else. That feeling in my stomach comes on suddenly. Like I'm on a heaving sailboat in giant waves that make me feel small. I've been excited about playing music. I've been starting to practice. I'm trying to find more songs that people know the words to so they can sing along. I googled best party songs for acoustic guitar and I've been making my way through the list. I'm liking my friend less and less, but he's not done yet. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't know if you're that good. Oh, seriously? I stare at my hands, the blood rushing into my ears, my jaw tightens. Yeah, and look, does it always have to be about you? Why do you feel the need to be on stage all the time anyway? He put on a mocking bully's voice. Look at me, look at me. 
I put my guitar back in its case. I shut down my search windows. I'm not excited about the block party anymore. In fact, now I'm thinking about ways to get out of going. I don't want to see those people. I can't face them. Not now. Not now that I know they think I'm terrible. Not now that I know I've been making a fool out of myself for years. Instead of practicing a few happy songs, I'm filled with self-loathing. My body is twisted into an anxious mess. I need to find a very small cave to escape into. And my friend? That friend is a jerk. Somehow, I keep him around. He keeps showing up. He means well. He thinks he's protecting me, telling me secrets and truths that no one else will. He's been around a long time. And he thinks that he knows me better than anyone else. That friend? That friend is me. It's that small, ugly voice in my head that gnaws at me, tries to shelter me from pain by inflicting pain. It's the small, no voice, the mental equivalent of the amygdala, always pointing out the bad stuff that might hurt me, trying to keep me safe. It's the one that told me to just sit down instead of going to talk to the pretty girl at the bar in college. It's the one that interjects, yeah, but each time someone gives me a compliment. It's the one that tells me no matter how much I achieve, no matter how successful I am, my father won't love me the way I need him to. I'm by myself in my home office, tears slowly creeping down my hot face. (sighs) To hell with that voice. Luckily, I have more perspectives roaming in my mind. In addition to that inner critic, I have inner champions. If I let them, if I calm down and be still, their wisdom can be heard. Inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale, just slow down. My true self is in there somewhere. It's more curious, asks more questions. It sees the full picture. Actually, lots of people are into your music, it tells me. For some, you know, it's their favorite part of the evening. They ask you to play every time. I nod, my jaw still tight. Remember how they like to sing along? Look, if you don't sing, they won't sing either. They'll be afraid to. And that would be a shame. I sigh and nod again. Look, not everyone is going to hang out in the same area as you're playing. Even if John Lennon himself showed up, some would still prefer to play beer pong or tell stories as they trade whiskey shots. Hmm. Yeah, that's also true. Look, you don't have to do this or not do this for anyone other than you. So if you feel like playing music, if you enjoy it, then you should do it. Because other people will appreciate it. They enjoy the music. They enjoy you. So you decide. Do what you want to do. I sigh again. I feel better. I walk the dog to clear my head. And when I return, I continue my search for party songs. My three-ring songbook has grown fat. I'm up to 80 that I can play confidently. I go back to practicing. On the night of the party, I tell my mean friend to shut the hell up. I leave him at home. We play music on Vincent's porch for three hours, and people sing along. We have a great time. I have a great time. Wow, Scott, that that story. I remember reading that in the book and feeling like, wow, this friend is such a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I was like, wow, this this person is so mean. And then discovering that it was the voice inside your head. And, you know, 
we, you know, as coaches, we often will ask the question, I know, because we've talked about this, Leah, you know, what would you say to a friend, right? Like, take right. yourself out of you and put yourself in a friend. And how would you treat a friend in this situation? And it allows someone to take themselves in outside of their own perspective and be a friend to themselves, which is so much easier to do because we have this inner critic. Yes. And so I'm curious, actually, in this particular story, how did you move from that inner critic to the inner champion, knowing that that is the the tough part. Yeah, it took some time, and it's a constant battle, right? We have we have all these different parts of us: the parts that are confident, the parts that are not confident. I was able to recognize that I was headed in this spiral, and th- this I think is the work, right? When we put in the work, we can start to pull ourselves out of the spin when we start to spin. When maybe before I would just spin for three or four days, or I would end up just like ditching the block party. Maturity is standing in the fire and recognizing it. And so going, ah, oh, actually, what's really all the way true here? The real question is, what else is true? Remembering that we are programmed to focus on the negative. We have to ask ourselves, okay, look, what else is true? And so that was the question I asked myself and, and the results that I got. And it ended up, you know, being great. You and I spoke before we even recorded this because so much of this book was powerful and a lot was resonant. And, and one of the things that was really powerful for me was about how open you have been about your story in this book. Almost in a way, it's like a meta way of creating self-love or like it is the the outcome of the amount of self-love that you have because you almost can't write a book like this without accepting and knowing and loving yourself and your story. Yeah. There's a freedom that comes. Look, it's scary. It's even scary now (laughs) telling these stories, right? Uh, But there's a freedom that comes with the full disclosure. Because, like, have you ever tried to keep a secret and how it just gnawed at you and gnawed at you and gnawed at you and you finally told the secret and then it's like, oh, I feel so relieved. And this is what it's like to be vulnerable, to, to share these things with the world and be like, look, this is who I am. And I really... Like, I want you to still like me. I want you to care. But at the end of the day, if you don't, like, I'm fine. I'm good. Yeah. There was a part, Scott, too. I mean, at at the beginning, and, you know, for listeners who haven't read the book, this is a really powerful book. So we highly recommend it. And, and, you know, you start the book off with some really real stuff around suicide. And and it, it took me back to my own stories of mental health and challenges that I've had around anxiety and and uh, suicide in my own life and my friends and, and, you know, in my circles. And I'm just curious for you, you know, we talk about something small, like playing the guitar at a block party and something mm. as big as, you know, feeling such pain inside that you don't share. And I'm curious, yeah. how do you, how did you, and this is of course not, you know, advice, medical advice to anyone, but how do you yeah. wrap your heart and soul around your whole life's experience, including that? So first of all, thank you for that. The opening story is, uh, you know, me contemplating suicide. And it was the dark, my dark night of soul. It happened when I was 15 and 16 years old, my first two years of high school. I felt isolated, right? And this is what I've come to know as an adult of what was going on. I felt alone, right? I felt isolated and alone and disconnected both to myself and to others. And that's a, that's a, not a great place to be. And with the benefit of time, I wanted to talk about it because there's such a stigma around mental mental health. People don't talk about suicide. You know, I have 
I have a friend uh, who committed suicide, and to this day, the family says that it was a car wreck, right? They still won't even admit to themselves that something happened. And if you can't, you know, you, you can't heal what you don't feel, right? You, you've got to get in there and, and be real about it. And if we can't even be real about it at the surface level, then for sure, we're never going to heal those wounds at the deeper level. So part of it was... I wanted people to be able to talk about it and share their own story and be able to heal themselves uh, and maybe loosen up a little bit on the stigma that we have. And then for me too, it's a big part of my story and just getting it out there, which which was hard, but just getting out there has been transformational for me personally as well. And I totally commend you for that. Like I, I like, I bow to you virtually. <laughs> Thank you. Because it is really powerful. Yeah. If later anybody decides to get the audiobook, I, I had to I had to relive it, right? First I had to relive it to to write the story, then I had to relive it to to tell the story out loud, and that was uh, that was not easy. Thank you so much for sharing that piece with us and your readers and everyone. I know it's going to impact so many people. You know, I'm curious, how would you what do you consider this book? Is it a memoir? Is it a self help book? Is it a mental health book? It's a great question. So my publisher and I decided to put it in the business section, right? Because you have to you have to choose something up front and you only get basically one choice. Like if you're going to go into Barnes & Noble and pick the book, like what? You can't pick six sections. What, what section do you go to to pick it up? And so technically it's going to be a business book. And I kind of laugh at that because the only reason it's a business book is because I'm a business guy. Right. <laughs> the context of my life has been, you know, I've been an executive. I've led operations. Um, but it's it's really a book about life. And some of the stories are in the business setting. So I think it will appeal. Look, I think the stories are about all of us. So it appeals to anybody. But the center of the bullseye is for people who are working and they're asking themselves, they're sitting at their desk one day and they ask themselves, seriously, is this all there is? Like, is this is this what it's all about? And I think that, that what I've written about is the sweet spot that helps to get at that question. Mm -hmm. So just to pivot a little bit more on the love yourself, what does it mean to love oneself? Part of it is to, to build on the first part of knowing yourself, to know your story and to love every part of it, to not shy away from it, right? To have a full mindfulness and not mindfulness like the practice, but mindfulness of I have a 360 degree view of my life including the good things, as well as the bad things that were conditioned. That's part of it. Part of it is recognizing that I'm more than just my body and my mind and my emotions. And so for me, you, you know, I kind of hint at it, but I, I don't necessarily go all the way, but I hint at this deeper part, which we might talk about as spirituality. The book, you know, the, the book is kind of a sneaky spiritual book. I don't, I, I, it's not a I'm not uh, telling anybody what to do or how to think, but I just share my own experiences because, you know, I believe that I'm an expert in one thing, and that is in my own life and my own experiences. And so this knowing myself and then loving myself is about recognizing me, me as soul, not as Scott, the personality, but at me as soul and that the, the experiences that I have transcend the physical, the mental and the emotional there's a question I've been considering for myself and you just reminded me of this, Scott, which is who am I and how people respond typically is like, well, you know, I'm Leah smart or I'm Jackie Goldberg or I'm Scott shoot. Okay. Well, who, who are you really? 
Oh, yeah. well, I grew up in California or wherever. Right. And as you keep going with that question, the truth becomes that you are none of those things. Right. So then who are you? Right. That's what I mean by loving yourself is getting to that. You know, you can think of it back, back to business. You can think about it of the five whys of Six Sigma <laughs> and, use your, and use this business tool of Six Sigma to get to the same place. Who am I? That's what we're all trying to figure out. Part three, the mastery of me. I have a tough decision to make. My top lieutenant is taking another role and I need to replace him. I'm hiring for the most strategic role on my team. This senior director's success will be my success and it feels like everyone is watching. It feels like the biggest hire of my life. There are two finalists. We've gone through many rounds of interviews and much feedback and discussion. The interview team, made up of my direct reports and some important cross-functional partners, is split 50-50. We've gotten many people involved because we want them to be part of the change management process. We want them to be part of the decision so they'll buy in more deeply to whomever we choose. And this is an opinionated bunch. Half the team wants the external candidate, Anka. They think she's great. And they are not convinced the other candidate can do the job. And half the team, exactly half the team, wants the internal candidate, Mackenzie. They think she's great. And they are not convinced at all that the other candidate can do the job. I have that uncomfortable, boxed-in feeling. I know that no matter which one I choose, I'm going to upset half the team. And with my life strategy of likability, I prefer consensus, or at least majority. It saves me from that ugly conflict, keeps me safe. This is going to be my decision only. There's no hiding. I mull it over for a few days. I have my pros and cons list for both candidates, and I consider the counsel of everyone involved. It's even. Both are fully capable. We have found the right candidates, and there's no more available information to make the call. Either would be okay, but which one is right? No amount of further discussion or interviewing will allow me to see into the future or how they will lead, to see how they'll vibe with the team, how their true colors will fly. It's decision time. I want to get it right, and the stakes are high. In these situations, some people go with their gut. I have something similar in mind, but with a twist. My mind feels very noisy, and I need to get quiet. In contemplation, I ask for guidance. I have a conversation with the universe. Okay, look, I don't do this very often, but I need some help here. I need a sign. I take some deep breaths and settle in. If it's Anka, and I lightly bring Anka to mind. She's an Indian woman with deep black hair. If it's Anka, I'm going to see dark black hair with a bun in the back and a butterfly pin holding it all together. I know, it's random, but it's the image that came to me. And if it's Mackenzie, I bring Mackenzie to mind. And I remember that she has a distinctive bright orange work bag that she carries around. I'll see an orange uh, rhinoceros. <laughs> I chuckled to myself. An orange rhino? How's, how's that going to happen? I know from trying this technique previously that I need to be specific. I need to pick things that I normally wouldn't encounter. If I choose a silver Prius versus a blue bird, I'll see hundreds of them. I guess I could say, okay, whichever I see first, silver Prius or blue bird, and maybe that would make it easier for the universe. But I want to be sure. I want the secret handshake, the knowing wink, the unmistakable connection. I finish my contemplation with great gratitude. Okay, within the next 24 hours, let's go. 
I'm convinced that either of the candidates would be fantastic. It's going to be fine either way. And I turn it over to the universe and put my pros and cons list away. And I feel a weight lift from my shoulders. The next day comes and goes and nothing happens. And I kind of forget about my request. But the day after, a Friday, my team and I take off early to watch the Star Wars movie that's opening that day. We're hanging out, enjoying our popcorn, settling in to watch the previews. And I'm relaxing, letting the stress of the week start to slip away. I'm in a whispered conversation with my seatmate when I see the screen and freeze. In the preview for an animated movie, an orange rhinoceros has just rambled across the screen. <laughs> my first inclination is, whoa, wait, 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 wait. Was that orange or red? Was it kind of red-orange? <laughs> I laughed to myself again. And then I have that familiar feeling. The full body, yes. It feels right. My mind settles. My body settles. I know it's going to work out. That's it. The decision is made. I feel connected, supported, loved. And of course, of course, Mackenzie is absolutely fantastic in her new role. For those of you who haven't read the book, the cover is of an orange rhinoceros. So so this is how the story turned out for Scott, and it was powerful enough to make it the cover. Scott, I mean, there's so many things that come up for me in this portion of the book. Number one, going back to earlier when you said that this is a business book, but it's really a spiritual book prosing as a, as a business book because you're a businessman <laughs> um, and you've been in business. And it, it reminds me of this sense that like somehow, you know, spirituality or whatever you want to call it doesn't yeah. belong at work. And so yeah. you've done something, you know, personally, I think really powerful for me to help me integrate this more. And I also love, love that you shared what it's like to ask for and receive a sign with full trust. Like you said, you know, I could ask for a Prius, but I'd see 50 of them. You asked for yeah. something difficult. Can you just talk about cultivating this relationship with the universe, having yeah. that trust and, and moving towards it? First of all, so thank you. This this is how I believe things work. And I also believe that if you think things don't work like this, that that's how they work also. <laughs> right? So I believe, I believe that the signs are all around me. You know, sometimes it's in a license plate. Sometimes it's in a bit of overheard wisdom from people in the conversation at the booth next door at a restaurant. Sometimes it's in a billboard Sometimes it's in a dream or a waking dream. In this case, I wanted something super specific and asked for a sign. And then the way I think that works is once you're given a sign, you act on it. Because if you don't act on it, you don't complete the cycle. And it's like, well, good luck getting another sign. You didn't, look, you didn't answer the last one. And so for me, this is, this is how I believe it works. And part of why it works is the energy that I put into it. Right? If I believe it works, then it works. And for someone who believes this is all just BS and it doesn't work at all, well, they're right. It doesn't work for them. I kind of, I always share with people that to me, like my own spirituality or what I've seen is like magic. So similar to what you said, it's like, if you don't believe in it, you won't see it and you probably yeah. won't get it. But the minute you sort of plug in the lamp, all of a yeah. sudden you start to see all the other lamps, you know, around the world that show you that it's, it's real. The electricity is real. Yep. Mm -hmm. That's right. And I, I also think what's so inviting about your book is that wherever you are, 
on this, let's say, spectrum of spirituality, you find something in here that you can resonate to, right? If you've never done a practice before where you've manifested or you trusted or you believed or you asked for what you want and receive it, maybe that's something you try, but there, there are other aspects that give you hope and optimism and trust in other ways. And if something that you have done, you feel seen and you feel heard just by, by reading your words. What made you put this particular story under the mastery of me section? So when we start moving from life happens to us to life happens for us, then we can begin to have this relationship with something bigger, right? We can start to realize that we're part of the deal because because the third part of it, when we really get to this self, level of self-mastery, is then life happens through us, right? Which we'll talk about in the next section. But I, I put this one because it's, as you said, it's, it's a work story. This was a, one of the biggest moments I had in the context of my job at work. And here's how I used the tools that I've developed in my wisdom tradition and applied them in the workplace. This helps me with my job, right? Who doesn't want to be better at their job? Who doesn't want to be more productive along with being happier and blah, blah, blah. Like this helped me, these practices have, have helped me be more successful at what I do at the workplace. Mm-hmm. Why can't we figure out how to combine our idea of like analytics and analyzing and logic with something like this? I think we can. I think we just, you know, we have to start using inclusive language, right? And when people bring their spirituality to work in a way that is about religion, then it becomes divisive, right? So I don't talk about my religion. I have one, but I don't talk about it. I talk about my practices. I talk about what's going on inside of my head, but I'm not trying to convince you of anything about my religion. That's something totally, you know, uh, specific to each other. So let me give you an example. You know, I think there's a lot of people who have had near-death experiences, right? And they come back and they tell these stories, and, and a lot of them are very similar. They, they run the gamut, but a similar story that many, many hundreds, maybe thousands of people have had is like they're dead. They're literally dead on the operating table or whatever, and they, they cross over. There's like this some feeling of lightness and joy, and they get the sense that their loved ones are on the other side. And then they come back into their body, you know, they get revived. Now, they know that they've had this experience. But the scientists, the doctors, and the hardcore scientists will say, yes, but, well, what's really happening is there's chemicals in our brains that blah, 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 blah. And what I'm thinking is, yes, yes. Why aren't both things true? I believe both things are true. There are things that science has not gotten to yet, right? So why do we completely ignore, just because we can't prove it with science, why do we ignore things that people are experiencing? And so what I've tried to share in this book is like, here's what I'm experiencing. And I don't know what you're experiencing. I don't know. I'm an expert in me. You're an expert in you. But if you read this, like read it as if it's your own story and think about, okay, what has happened in my life that's similar? And you be an expert in your own life. I think Jackie and I can both say we definitely have experienced this. <laughs> <laughs> We're with you. Part four, compassion in action headed to baseball. Ugh, I should be back at the office. I have work to do. I'm stuck in traffic and there's been an incident on the 101. I left at 3.15 so I could get to my son's Little League baseball game in time to get the field ready for our game today. I've been coaching the team for the past couple of years. Today, 
I'm annoyed. My schedule is completely stacked, and there's a customer issue that's been bubbling up and will likely require my attention. The work has piled up on my desk and feels like a monster, ready to devour me on my return. There are people on my team who wanted time from me today, and I had to say no. And I'm leaving in the middle of the day. Even though we have flex time, leaving before five o'clock just feels wrong. It makes me feel guilty. I was already feeling stressed about the whole situation, and now this traffic slowdown is piling on, adding another brick to my wall of irritation. My inner talk track has gone dark. Seriously, what, what am I doing? I have work and I'm leaving at three to go coach baseball? I never should have agreed to manage the team. Why can't someone else help me get the field ready? Gah! I let out a frustrated growl as the traffic slows. We're moving from three lanes to two. There are two cars in the far right lane that have gotten into a scuffle, and the drivers are discussing things on the shoulder. Ah, people need to learn how to drive. Come on, I say out loud. My funk continues. I resume my inner list of complaints about life. As I inch past the accident, I catch a look at the face of the man driving the car that was the back half of the fender bender. He looks spent. In that moment, I realize that he is an actual person as well. He's not just an actor in my play, just there to irritate and slow me down. He's like me, just trying to get by. Maybe he's also stupid busy. Maybe he's been rushing to pick up his daughter from school. Maybe he's late on his bills and wondering if he's going to keep putting up with his boss to keep the checks flowing. Maybe he'd glanced down at his buzzing phone one too many times and missed seeing the brake lights in front of him. And now, maybe he's feeling self-loathing as he has to find his registration and insurance docs from the glove box. After this latest disaster, maybe his wife will finally follow through on the divorce she's been threatening him with. Seeing his face shifts something for me and wakes me from my bad dream. I shake my head and take a deep breath and reconsider. What else is true? I'm focused on what's wrong, but what's right? What else is true? Actually, I have a long list. First, I love my son. I enjoy watching him play baseball. I enjoy seeing him learn and grow. I enjoy watching him practice and get better every day. I enjoy playing catch with him in the front yard. I love baseball. It was my favorite sport as a kid. And coaching allows me to be 10 years old again, to be out on the field in the spring with the smell of the freshly cut outfield. I love coaching, coming up with new drills, new combinations of lineups. I love hanging out with the guys, seeing their joy as they're released from school and unleashed onto the grass. I share their sense of freedom. I'm incredibly grateful that I have a job where I can leave at three o'clock on a Tuesday to do what I need to do. I realize many people aren't as fortunate. My list continues. I am choosing to be here. One more powerful memory hits me. When I was a kid, I absolutely treasured the times my dad would play catch with me. Often he was too busy. I had a pitchback, a springy net that I would throw the ball to and it would return it. I spent hours in front of that thing, practicing my craft, waiting until it got dark, hoping my dad would have enough energy to throw for a while after working in the field all day. The pitchback was functional, but a poor substitute for time with my dad. During those long sessions alone, a thought was starting to form. If I ever had a son, if he ever asked me to play catch, no matter how tired or busy I was, I would always say yes. In the car, I smile at the memory. I've come full circle. I'm not frustrated with my dad. 
I understand him. I have compassion for him. I am him. I play two scenarios forward. In the first one, I spent 35 minutes in the car complaining to myself about how life is getting in the way, about all the things I have to do. And when I show up at the field, I storm around. I get things ready for the boys. When the lawnmower won't start, I throw my body around and curse like a sailor. I can't figure it out. I pound the top of the mower with my hand, curse some more. I give up and decide the dirt infield doesn't need to be raked anyway. As the other coaches from our team arrive, I testily share that I've already been there for half an hour by myself. They become quiet, withdrawn around me. They've also left work early, have their own problems, have the same tearing guilt as they've stretched between their work and their home lives. As the other team's coaches arrive, he asks why the field hasn't been raked. I complain about the mower. He huffs off, says he'll do it himself. A few minutes later, I wince as I hear the mower cough to life, and I watch the other coach prepare the field. I stand by, feeling impotent. That was my job. As the boys arrive, I have no patience. I'm short with them. I expect full compliance to my commands. They all annoy me. Our pregame drills are crisp. I'm shouting at the boys. I sense a bit of fear in them as they move from one drill to another. I notice that Seth has stayed behind in the dugout. And from the third baseline, I shout, Hey, get out here! He does not get out there. After a couple of attempts, I storm to the dugout. Dude, what the hell? Let's go! Seth tears up, and by the time I soften and try to talk to him, it's too late. He can't hear me. He goes to sit next to his mom on the bleachers. She tries to encourage him back to the game, and it's not happening. After ten minutes, she finally relents. He's a mess. She's nearly carrying him to the car. She mouths, I'm sorry, to me, and they go home. I can see the disappointment and guilt in her eyes, and Seth misses the next three weeks of baseball. It's quiet in the dugout. We force a few testosterone-filled shouts of encouragement during the game. There are tenter tantrums and petty arguments. There are grim smiles and tight jaws. And when it's over, we pack up quickly in silence and go home. In the second scenario, I spend 35 minutes in the car recounting all the things I'm grateful for. How life is providing me opportunity to grow every day, to learn a little bit more about myself and others, a little bit more about love. I remember how much I love baseball, how much I love my son, how much I love hanging out with the guys, how much I enjoy being with the other dads. I show up with gratitude that I'm able to serve my community in this way. The mower won't start, but after a few deep breaths, I remember you have to wiggle the choke and then turn the key just past halfway until it fires. And once it starts, it runs like a boss. As I drag the dirt infield, I enjoy the patterns the iron mesh rake makes. It reminds me of tractor work on the farm. As the other coaches on our team arrive, I ask how their day has been, and I can see the busy on their faces. I thank them for their service. I share my appreciation for how they left their own jobs early. I think of something specific each one of them has done to help, and share my gratitude for that. I ask them what their favorite memory of playing baseball was when they were kids and I listen patiently, smiling. I ask them what they think their son's favorite memory will be from this season. I share something positive about each of their sons that I've observed. I can see them soften. I can see them arriving. I can see their shift from busy to present happen ever so slowly, like the mower coming to life. And once they're present and get going, they run like a boss. When the other team's coach arrives, we trade some friendly banter. He thanks me for having the field ready. I find exactly the right mix of competitive teasing and warmth. 
He's laughing as he heads to his Keem's dugout. I hear him shouting happy encouragement to his boys. He's crackling with energy. And when the kids all arrive, we head to the grass in center field. We have a funny song that we've made up together to cheer before we get started. I laugh with them. I have the patience to channel their freedom, their energy into our craft, finding the delicate balance between the organization of a team and the loose freedom of each individual. I'm aware when Seth is quiet and not paying attention. And while the boys take the field, I ask one of the other dads to manage the game for a bit. I go to Seth. I kneel on the ground and in front of him. Search his eyes. Listen. He tells me his story. I share a few caring words of encouragement. We have a real conversation. I see him. After a few minutes, he moves from his head to his body. He nods. He's ready to go. He thrives. At the end of the season, his mom tells me through tears that baseball has been the only good thing in Seth's life. She thanks me for being there for him. The boys are loud. They're cracking jokes. They bounce from the dugout to the field. They bat with great enthusiasm. They cheer each other on from a place of pure joy. And when it's over, they ask when our next game is, eager for another chance to feel this way. I wish I could tell you that at each juncture like this one in my life, I chose option two. Compassion is so simple. Compassion can be so hard. The full body, yes, can be elusive, yet it's as near as our heartbeat, as close as our breath, always right there for us to step into. And I, well, I am a work in progress. There is so much goodness in that story. So many things (laughs) that we can pull out, so much to talk about. I mean, for one, choosing to be somewhere rather than having to be somewhere. Right. How powerful one's mindset is, the gratitude, um, and then the domino effect that you have on others when you're that way. I want to focus on what I saw as a shift when you were in the car and then how to pull that out into compassion was when you saw the other person in in that car and Mm. were able to identify that he's like me and the power that that has to take yourself out again of your body and look to someone else. There's one quote that I actually had taken out from the book. It's on page 182. And you were telling another story about um, compassion. But the quote is, when you're stuck, do one thing each day out of pure love, pure service with no expectation of reward. And so when it comes to serving to giving why does that matter so much like why is that the thing you know my advice to people when they're really 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 stuck is to do this do one good thing with no expectation of reward because the thing is we start moving from me to we and for me this is what this whole journey is the movement from me to we when i'm just thinking about me it's all about me the whole world centers around me right and so it's my story and i'm the only character in my story except for all these other people who are you know, getting in my way. And for me, the recognition of this other person that they were having a bad day and starting to think about them, just just starting to realize that I'm not the only one who ever has a bad day. I'm not the only one who ever succeeds. I'm not the only one who ever fails or has pain. It's like, we're all in this together. We all have our own stories. We're all extraordinarily unique. And yet, at the deepest, deepest level, again, in my kind of belief system, I'm this pure spark of energy, just like you. 
and you and you and every one of us are this pure spark of energy. And all together, we're in this giant kind of cosmic sea of energy. So on the one hand, I'm unique and there's only one of me, but in the same way, I'm the same as everybody else or part of this thing. I'm connected to everyone. And so if I can have some separation and I start to do something that's for the good of the whole, then by nature, I'm doing something that's good for me. Scott, I, um, I was emotional just listening to you come to the end because we've all been in that moment of decision of whether we're going to show up the way we really want to show up. We're going to show up the way our day is making us, quote unquote, show up. Right. Uh, our experience is making us show up. And what really got me actually that only this time, even when reading it, I didn't notice, but just the impact that one person can have on so many other people's lives. Like we are all these sparks of light. And right. at the same time, like I, you know, I, I go with the, the Gary Zukov model of we are all human beings having spiritual beings having a human experience. And so we have to hold our spirituality with our human experience of having a brain and a body and a life that tells us right. to be different than that spark. And so it was just right. beautiful to think about, you know, making that second choice and being able to impact this kid, Seth, in a way that, you may never know, right? Just because you showed up for, for that person in one moment. That's right. And this is the choice we have every day, every moment, right? And, and this is the third part of when we move away from being a victim or life is happening to me, we start to be aware life is happening for me. Then the third part is life is happening through me, right? And we see how when we're fully in tune with ourselves and we've developed ourselves, then Wow, we're impacting everyone, including ourselves, in a really, really profound way. How do you know when life is happening through you? Well, I mean, honestly, I think it's, it's happening all the time. I, I know it as uh, the title of the book, <laughs> The Full Body Yes, right? When, you, when I feel that feeling like everything is aligned, like every atom in my being, every fiber in every part of it is aligned to something, then I feel like, okay, I'm there. I'm, I'm part of the bigger thing and I'm contributing. I'm a coworker with it instead of just being tossed around by it. In a lot of the stories that you've shared today, but also in your book, there's a very clear mind-body connection. So even, for example, in the story with the voice inside your head, the inner critic playing the guitar, there was a moment where you said you had a pit in your stomach just from yeah. the negative self-talk. Yeah. And when you're talking about being in the movie theater and feeling the full body, yes, mm -hmm. you said your mind settles and your body settles. You felt connected and it just felt right. And so there's such an importance of that awareness of the alignment between the, the mind and, and the body. Sure. I like to make things simple, right? We don't have to understand this model. We don't have to, have to understand how anything works. But here's a very simple practice that I know you guys know of how to make a decision. Let's say that you have two things you're thinking about, like the story I told between the two candidates, right? But pick your two things and get really clear about what your two things are. Should I take this job or that, this relationship or that? Or even as simple as this breakfast cereal versus that toast or whatever. And I imagine thing number one, and I bring it to mind, and I imagine I've already chosen thing number one. And I take a really deep breath in and a really deep breath out. And then I just notice how my body feels. I, I sit with that for a little bit. Then I fade it away, have a palate cleanser. And then I imagine thing number two. And I imagine I've already chosen thing number two. This is my life. This is how it's going to work. And I take another deep breath in 
and a long deep breath out and I just feel how that feels in my body. Oftentimes for me, there's an extraordinary difference between the two. Now, what will science tell us? <laughs> I, I would say, who cares? Who cares what science tells us? Science has not advanced to know what the gut knows, the gut brain. And where is that information coming from? I don't know. But what I know is it works. And I know how I feel inside when I do those things. So try it. And I love that you're sort of, I mean, you've come full circle with this, which is your book's title, which is you buying into and each of us buying into our own full body. Yes. Whatever that looks like. Yeah. So I'm walking away thinking about, you know, my own full body yeses and how I can ensure I, I feel like I do a very good job of leaning into them, but how I can do it even more. And in what moments am I trying to bring my brain into a situation that it shouldn't be involved in? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So love that you're giving that permission to people, whether they're sitting at their desk or they're sitting on their couch, or they're right. sitting with their family, that this intelligence of our body and our internal teacher, our soul, or whatever you want to call it, is always available to us. That's right. It's always there. So thank you. My pleasure. And that we're not perfect, that we're all imperfect, and we're all a work in progress, as you said. Exactly. We exactly. We're not going to get every day right. Even if we think we know all the answers, we're not going to get it right every time. So... Keeping score is just like, am I, am I just a little bit better than yesterday? Just a little bit better than a year ago? Like, am I making progress? Am I living my values? Am I living towards and moving towards my own full body? Yes. Then, then I have run my race and I have won. Well, Scott, thank you so much for joining us. We loved the book. So many takeaways and looking forward to what you do next uh, as you take this on the road and, and share more of your work with the world. So we've loved having you today and so appreciate you being here. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So grateful for you, Scott. Thank you. Thank you. And for our listeners, thanks for joining us on the journey. You can find us on iTunes podcast. You can also find us on Spotify, on Audible, and on Google Play. And we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.